All right, so Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me. Um, I think you know what I want to try and do with this uh, Ballet Evolution uh, podcast is to tell stories and to help people to evolve from those stories, uh, to learn from our experiences. And I know that you have had uh, a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of experience working with dancers and your own dance career. Is there a story that you would like to tell that you feel is, is quite powerful that you've experienced that would bring um, that, that, that's something that would help dancers that would that take them to that level of understanding um, that maybe you could share? Um, well, first, thanks for having me um, in to have this conversation with you. I think it's so important that we do continue to have these conversations and that we um, pull the curtain back a little bit on the powerful wizard and see that it actually is uh, a painful and dysfunctional sometimes art form that we all love and we all want to see continue to grow and become um, everything that it is capable of being, uh, while at the same time not sacrificing people's health and humanity for it. Um, so I'm really glad to be a part of these discussions. Uh, and I feel like I have a lot of stories just like you do. And I think that's kind of the point um, is that I didn't realize they were stories until I looked back on them and went, oh, that was traumatic. Oh, that was the story. Oh, this happened. And there are these moments in our life, uh, especially as ballet dancers, we're just trained not to ask questions and not to um, not to question judgment or casting or any of that. Um, and there's certainly a way to do it respectfully, right? Not just how dare you not cast me as sugar plum, but, but we're trained so much not to question authority that when these things happen, we don't even give ourselves space to process it um, before we are on to the next thing and we're swallowing it. And then it's years later, usually after our career is over or after an, uh, an injury is over with and onto the next injury that we look back and go, oh gosh, oh yeah, that was that thing that happened. That was that thing that was kind of a turning point. Um, I was one of those hypermobile dancers who was not the cool kind of hypermobile. So I didn't have the crazy flexible back. I didn't have crazy, incredible high extension. Um, I had shoulders that wouldn't stay in the socket. I dislocated them a lot. So many times I had to have one of my shoulders surgically sewn into place basically. Um, and my ankles, I've dislocated my, like literally dislocated my ankle bones so many times um, and had some pretty severe injuries because of that. But those are just the things that they're like, yes, let's keep going, let's keep moving. And nobody ever once said, hey, like, how are you gonna deal with that? They just said, oh man, that's unfortunate. Well, I guess we'll have to solve that problem. You know, I remember um, my first big, big injury was what they called a sprained pelvis, which um, of course I know now was that crazy hypermobile SI joint. Nobody knew what to do with it. They just kept saying, rest, don't strengthen it. Don't try to deal with it. Uh, and it took me about a year to come back from it, but I was 15 when I first had to start dealing with it. And I was dancing, um, I was dancing as an apprentice for, I won't name the company, but a major national company and uh, was invited to come back and an apprentice again when I was 16 with the intention that I would stay on for the year, you know, leave high school and all that stuff. And I remember going after having missed a whole bunch of class that year, but working as hard as I could to get back in shape and keep moving forward and thinking they're so great. They're so gracious. They've invited me to come back. They've said, don't worry, don't worry. It's going to be fine. And I remember going, taking company class and stepping out to go change my shoes. And on my way back into the classroom, I remember hearing the director, the rehearsal director and the artistic director talking. And they said, oh, you know, it's such a shame about Jennifer. She would have been such a great dancer. 
and you just swallow it, wait till they can't see you and you walk back in. But they had absolutely written me off as any possibility of being a dancer at the age of 16. I hadn't moved far enough along in that one year. So in their mind, they were, you know, they were like, oh, well, too bad. And at that age, I thought, okay, well, if I can't be at this high of a level, if I can't be you know, a soloist with ABT or San Francisco, um, then I'm going to do something else. And I got into musical theater and started doing doing Broadway to use my dance skills in that way. And I, I, I definitely have some regrets for closing that door so quickly, but also knew that that was a form of self-preservation for me and a form of rejecting it before they could reject me. And so I had had a nice little pre-professional second company apprentice in a big company kind of career and then with their casual like not even facing me with it um that was my okay it's time to switch gears and I switched gears and, and got into musical theater and then was doing a a, a non-union tour of a big show music man and um sprained my ankle on I think like the second day in a big big dance number and it was it was bad with my hypermobile ankles. It was really bad. And they very quickly were like, oh, well, we're not sure what we're going to do because the show has to keep going. You obviously can't dance. And they just sort of implied by, you know, we, we don't want to see you anymore. And I was astounded. And a family member was like, um, isn't there workman's comp? Which I didn't even know what that was. Right. Uh, but that was my first lesson of, uh, oh, no, it's a job. And I brought it up to them. They were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Of course, of course. Of course you get workers' comp. Of course we'll get you PT. And I was like, what, really? Gosh, these people are so nice. But, you know, it's actually the law. And that was my first accidental discovery of, hey, this is a job and we should be treated as professionals and not just so grateful to be there. Yeah. You know, so I had these lessons that I learned with my injuries that I didn't realize were lessons until I looked back on it. And that that one injury with my crazy hypermobile ankles, I never got back to the tour. By the time I was better, the tour was over. Um, but I got to take my time rehabbing and I had all of these people in a very, very nascent, very um, small and beginning dance medicine frontier, right? Uh, who were eager to help me figure out how to get back to dancing. And I was like, wait, they're all trying to make me better at my job. And it was such an eye opener that there were other options. And I was like, well, why didn't anybody tell me to stop walking in first position all the time? Well, why didn't anybody tell me to strengthen my glutes? Well, why did, and so it was this huge discovery moment. And that just kept moving me unknowingly to, to where I am now. Um, but it those little, those little trauma moments, unfortunately, as you know, um, are the moments that I learned a lot from. I wish I'd learned it a different way. Um, but I'm trying to save the next generation of dancers from having those trauma moments, which I, th I think you're doing as well. Yeah. Uh, like, I think it's something that, that, you know, because, because we are so dedicated to what we do as dancers, like we have this, this internal drive to, to just keep pushing, just keep getting better, get better, get better. That when it does come to something like a, an injury, it could even be that the injury is presenting itself and we're not aware of it, right? Like there might be pain that's, that's, that's coming up. There might be, um, you know, little, little just niggles that are, that are causing problems, but because we just keep pushing through it, eventually the body will, will make you stop whether you want to or not, right? Like that, that's what mm -hmm. tends to happen. Uh, and I've seen it happen, you know, not only to, to me, but to other dancers who they've just said, Oh, you know, I just kind of rolled my ankle at the end of that jump, but I'll just keep going. I'm okay. 
and they'll right. keep going and they'll keep going and they'll keep going. And then three weeks later, they really roll their ankle really bad. And then they fracture their fifth metatarsal or something, you know, something more serious happens. So it's one of those things that, you know, and even yesterday I, I made a, I made a, a quick story about how we have to, as dancers recognize that our health comes first, you know, because mm -hmm. if we don't pay attention to that, then it could be the end very quickly without you even you know wanting it to be it could just be okay well day day one to day two you're, you're done and that's it just just exactly like what you just explained where you're you're having these dreams of of you know having a career and then all of a sudden something small happens and you're completely written off and then because of the nature of how quick the industry moves they're on to the next person they don't even pay you a second notice so i think you know one of the one of the big lessons in that is is pay attention, first of all, to the little signals. But I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that in relation to hypermobile dancers and proprioception, because I've heard, and mm. it's come up a lot uh, recently about how hypermobile dancers may not have that body awareness because they do have that extreme mobility in their joints and their, their proprioception doesn't necessarily develop the same way as someone who's not hypermobile, um, depending on what's causing their hypermobility as well. Um, you know, how, how do we, how do we work around that? How do we, how do we help dancers who do have hypermobility, especially now, because it is so common in, in dance, uh, especially in ballet, pushing for people who are hypermobile to take up that, that uh, practice. How do we work through that? How do we help them to, uh, to know what's going on in their bodies? What are your recommendations? Well, I mean, first education, right. And we have to educate the teachers in how to spot it and how to work a little bit differently with them, how to understand what some of their um, what some of their challenges might be, and then the teachers educate the dancers. And there were so many parts about my own dancing with hypermobility that I had no idea was was not normal. I didn't know that when you did finger pirouettes in partnering, everybody's shoulder didn't come out of the socket. I thought that was just like that's what you sacrifice. Like it pops out, it pops back in. We're good. We'll keep going. Um, and the things that nobody said, oh yeah, that's not normal. We should talk about that. Or, or even for me to bring it up, there are so many things we're told, yeah, dance hurts, just keep going. Um, so I think education that there are going to be specific issues for dancers and proprioception is, I mean, there are so many studies out there and I could send you the, the literature to back it up that say that proprioception is often um, hindered or uh, less present in dancers with hypermobility. And there are a lot of different theories as to why. Um, I tell my dancers, it's a little bit like if the body has ADHD, and we know that having attention hyperactive deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactive, yes. Anyway, ADHD, we know that uh, having that is actually people experience more sensory input than a neurotypical person. And the body is experiencing more sensory input than a person without hypermobility. So if my shoulder, if the average shoulder joint has, let's say four different possibilities where the, where the ball could sit in the socket, then my shoulder joint could have 20. So as I'm moving my arms through space, my shoulder is constantly calculating and trying to decide, is this right? Is this right? Is this right? And it's exhausting. And so there's a huge part of attention that is being paid to these parts of your bodies just to keep you from falling apart. I love pants with pockets because I can put my hands in my pockets and it helps hold my shoulders in the socket. Like my arms don't have to hang free. And it's so many small things that your body has to be more on top of and doesn't have the processing space for the other stuff. 
So hypermobile dancers tend to be more clumsy. Hypermobile dancers may not have as good a balance. They may feel like partnering is easier because they're getting that feedback from their partner. They're getting that hands-on feedback. Um, so sussing that out is not just helpful for the dancer from a technical training point of view, but it's also from an emotional and mental point of view to think, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. This is harder. I'm not a weirdo because I can't stand for 10 seconds with my eyes closed without falling over. Like there is something else out there. So I really feel like education is key. Um, and also reminding dancers that hypermobility uh, is a tool and there's good parts of it and there are challenges to it as well. And if you don't have natural hypermobility, I can't emphasize strongly enough, please don't try to force the hypermobility. We don't want artificial hypermobility by forcing ourselves into those crazy positions because when we do that, we're overstretching the ligaments, the connective tissue, the capsule of our hips, um, and stretching those things never comes back. Like a muscle will stretch and then return to its original length, or else we would only have to stretch for the splits once and we'd be done. But with the connective tissue, with the ligaments, with the labrum, with everything like that, you stretch it and it's gone. It's like Aaron's thinking putty or silly putty. It won't recover to that tighter shape. And that's what leaves us prone to injury hip replacements. You know, I, I know of a 14 year old who got a hip replacement from overstretching her hip and 14 to get a hip replacement. So um, really, real education is everything at every level of the ballet world, I think. And I think, you know, I think that that education is is something that that, you know, has obviously started to improve. And I think it's definitely coming more and more into the public sphere. Um, what I think is is probably challenging, especially for the youth these days, is that they they'll go on to Instagram, for example, and they'll see their favorite their favorite dancer doing oversplits or something that um, they aspire to do, or you know, a grand jeté where the feet are up above the height of the of, you know their head, yeah, straight line or <laughs> you know, um, grumbot malls that are coming up and kicking them in each direction, right? Like that kind of mm -hmm. uh, excessive mobility, and. I, I look at it from my perspective, you know, having come up with uh, a Ukrainian teacher, he would push us to the point where we had to lift our legs very high. But it was also, you know, I, I have almost 15 centimeters of hyperextension in both knees. So I've got quite a bit of range in that knee going backwards. And it, mm -hmm. I was always told not to use it. So I was, it was the other way around. Like I was said, no, keep your legs straight. Don't go into that hyperextension, you know, avoid over, overextending the knee. Uh, and I just, I, I wonder when that changed, because, you know, you look back at probably even you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, dancers were not hypermobile. And I know that I've heard from a lot of older teachers that it was actually recommended that they, that they not take dancers who had that hypermobility. I'm mm -hmm. wondering, and I, you know, maybe, maybe it's something that is beyond this conversation, but just to put it out there as a question to society, when did we change our, our desires? When did it become about the over excessive split, when did it become about, you know, super high legs and, and that, that, that being the aesthetic design versus having it just a little bit lower, but controlled and the strength. But controlled. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Well, and I think about that all the time as well. And I look back and I never remember any of my teachers being like, wow, your hyperextended knees are awesome. Yeah. Let's play to that. They were like, what are you doing? <laughs> you're not standing right on your standing because I grew up with Vaganova teachers as well. They're like, you're not, your weight's not distributed correctly. That's terrible, <laughs> as, as they would say. Um, and I think, you know, I have friends um, in the, the physio side of Royal Ballet and they've said in the past, um, 
they would see people with hypermobility and say, that's going to be a problem. Like that person is going to be hard to promote because they are going to need so much more strength and they're going to need so much more training. And it wasn't looked at as an asset until I think just within the past 20, 15 years, you know, past 10 years, really, where it's been a thing to say, wow, with, I remember watching Sylvie Guillaume and the biggest thing that people criticized about her was that she was too mechanical, was she was too cold and too strong. And that's because she had to work her butt off to hold her body together. So she was super strong and she has these gorgeous lines, but she never gave into them and hung into them. And like, if I watched Alessandra Ferry, I used to think she had these most gorgeous lines, these beautiful legs and these beautiful feet. You go back and look at her now and you're like, well, it's about average. Like she was sort of that end range and now that's sort of where people start and think that's decent, but let's see if we could push it even further. And if you don't have the strength and the intelligence of Alessandra Ferry and how she knew how to work with that body, then, then you won't go very far. And studies have shown that the level of, of dancers in a company that has the least amount of hypermobility is principal dancer level um, because it's really hard to get to that level healthily and staying strong. And so fighting and pushing might get you hired. They might get you enough Instagram likes to get you on the radar of a school that'll get you into their apprentice program, that'll get you into their core where you may just languish and then eventually, you know, fall out from, from an injury or because you don't have the strength to back up the, the pretty pictures that you can make with your legs. So I think it's just been within the past decade or so. Which is, which is interesting because I think now we're also starting to see probably within the last decade an increase in strength training programs within dance companies. So I think, mm -hmm. I think they probably also recognize that, well, okay, well, if we're having this increase in hypermobility, we also need to make sure that we're reducing the rate of injury, which is, is a big part of, of health going forward. I know that there are- Well, and I think also, sorry, I think also that the increase in strength training and the increase in the support system in dance medicine has made it possible for people with hypermobility to have longer careers and to go further. Um, I spoke with Bonnie Southgate, who had an amazing career with um, Royal Ballet and ABT and who has uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a hypermobile connective tissue disorder. And it was constant work for her before she understood that that's what she was doing. It was constant strength training Pilates, ballet technique, tweaking all of that. And now that dancers have that support system, I think the hypermobile dancers aren't self-selected out at such a young age. I think it helps them even as society encourages them to be more <laughs> into that hypermobility. Yeah. No, it's, that's, and I think that's such a good thing that, that we're starting to see that, that develop, that, that dancers are not kind of left alone, right? Like, and, and even, even to, you know, to your story at the beginning about Oh, it's such a shame, right? Like that used to be the original discussion. It's like it's such a shame. Okay, move on. I think now, now there is definitely starting to be that uh, support system for those dancers who mm -hmm. have that extra, that extra help and that extra guidance. It's it's new, yeah. Like I didn't have it when I was dancing, and I, like I retired right. in 2017. So we're talking really within the last five to ten years that this has changed dramatically. And the company that I that I retired from now has a fully fledged strength training program with a personal trainer on staff and, and you know, well, well-being in that sense. Um, but when I was there, the conversation was, oh, your knees hurt? Well, you know, you're going to have to get platelet injections and take six months off. 
there was no discussion mm -hmm. around like let's get you in the gym strengthening your quadriceps making sure that your, your your knees are better supported and all that like that was not even a discussion so i think a lot of this stuff has come quite quite around uh to to the the public eye especially in the last five to ten years which is mm -hmm. which is definitely um, well, and I, I think we're starting to ask the question when dancers are injured. I think we're starting to ask the question, why? Like with you, your knees hurt. Why? When do they hurt the most? They hurt when you wake up. Do they hurt when you're finished with class? Do they hurt at the beginning of class? And they hurt less as you go on. Like, let's get to the bottom of that. And seven times out of 10, well, nine times out of 10, probably, um, it's an overuse, underuse issue, right? There's bad biomechanics somewhere. There's over strength in some part of the body, maybe your TFL, and there's under strength in your glutes to help balance that out. And if we can, instead of saying, oh, too bad, take six months off and get some injections, say, well, let's figure that out. What's causing that? Because you didn't have a fall. You weren't in a car accident. There was no traumatic thing that happened. So if this is an accumulative injury, let's figure out what's causing it in the first place rather than just make the pain go away. And that I think is the golden, is the magic bullet for um, helping dancers dance longer is why are these aches and pains coming up? And let's educate the dancers. Let's get in the ballet classroom and tweak that technique. Let's work one-on-one -on -one with a coach who works with the strength trainer to figure out what the issue is, fix whatever those biomechanical problems are, translate it into the classroom and away we go. Yeah. How do we, how do we help dancers to advocate for themselves? Because I think, I think that's also a big, a big issue, you know, and especially with those dancers who are hypermobile because they're already dealing with so much from a, from a awareness of themselves, right? Like they're trying to figure out how to move. They're trying to figure out how to hold themselves together. Um, and then to deal with the interaction of having to then take that to somebody who, who they see as their, you know, as their leader or someone who's got more power in, in, a, in a situation to be able to advocate for themselves, to, to take that strength and, and go, go in that, in that direction as well. I can't, I, I mean, for me, it was very difficult. I always found, um, interactions with people who had more power than me to be very challenging and like now I know that that was not just because of who I am but also because of you know what I deal with physically and and you know it's a it's a much deeper issue than just oh I struggle with confrontation it was something that that went beyond that to just naturally what my body has to deal with and so I like I it's a big thing that now we have to also provide dancers with those tools of, you know, what do you say to a director? What do you say to the ballet master to help them to understand? Because they probably don't get it, right? Like they, they're in a position where maybe they never had to deal with anything like that or, or their, mm -hmm. body, their body, you know, served them well through their career and, and now they're fine to then see a dancer who's maybe getting injured every six months and like, well, why, you know, you're just not doing enough work or you're lazy or you're not pushing yourself hard enough when in reality they're, they're working twice as hard just to be able to stand up. So, you know, I think obviously the education is a big part of it, but is there something that you would, I don't know, maybe, maybe a, a line of, of support or confidence that you would suggest dancers to, to engage in or to practice in that would help them to, to be able to engage in that, in that discussion with their director or their I think. I think having a team around you, like you've mentioned, you know, being able to find that, that medical support team also includes the mental support. Uh, for pre-professional dancers that 100% should include their parents. And so their parents need to be educated, need to be encouraged to stand up for their child, right? And be able to say, I'm going to go in there with you and we're going to talk to them about how you're in too many pieces and we need to cut one so that you can 
you know, sleep more than three hours a night. Like we need to make these changes and I'm going to do that with you because you're 14 and you shouldn't have to have that conversation on your own. And teaching them and modeling that for them is so important. And it's, it's a fair part of what I do in my private sessions. And I suspect that you do it as well, both in the classroom and in your one-on-ones is mentoring them through all of that, having these talks about their careers and, you know, sometimes role-playing with my dancers. Well, how would it feel if you said no to doing three trios and four group numbers and six solos and just did three things instead. How would that feel? What would that feel like? What would you want to say to the, to the teacher? Um, and being that person that's in their corner with absolutely no stake in it. I'm not going to make more money. I'm not going to have more accolades if they do more things. Like I just, I'm in their corner and they, everybody I think needs that. Um, and so empowering them or giving them space to step into their own power at that age will have them be in a position to be more comfortable with that when they're a principal dancer or a young core dancer trying to figure out what's fair and how to move up and forward. And again, it's that middle spot um, with the teachers. You know, I work with Minding the Gap that is a mental health uh, organization for dancers. And a lot of what we do is offering workshops for the teachers level, because we know that if we can change the teachers And we did one workshop that had um, like 170 teachers from all across the world in it. That's like tens of thousands of dancers that are going to be taught differently because those teachers have got that information are going to do something else. So if we can change the the teachers and not just give them the information, but help them heal from the generational trauma that they've had and look a little more objectively at what they went through. Um, that will change the next generation below them, which will in turn change the generations going up. So do we need to change the artistic creative staff's mind? Absolutely. Do they need to understand the importance of having medical, mental training support? Absolutely. Can we get the teachers to buy into it and make it easier and make give them that space to be more autonomous? That, yeah, I mean, that's what we have to do. I think I think just as a just as a last thing that mental that mental element is huge because part of a big part of what led to uh, the end of my dance career was that I was not feeling supported. And so that led to anxiety. And then I would get on stage and I wouldn't perform at the level that I knew I could because I had this anxiety Mm -hmm. around it, not being what I thought that they wanted to see. And then casting changed and then I got pushed back in casting and they got angry at me. So then I went and did something that, uh, you know, was, was kind of against what they wanted me to do. And then they found out about it and then it just went and it snowballed and it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, and there was no psychological support, right? So there was no one in the company at that point, no, no uh, performance psychologist, no one was helping us to understand what we needed to be able to do just to get through the day, to get on stage, to perform at our highest level. And mm-hmm. so I think that is definitely a huge element that is probably the, the, the biggest space that hasn't come into ballet companies yet. Like we're starting to do the dance strength training. We're starting to understand how bodies work. We're starting to educate dance teachers more in anatomy and biomechanics so that they know how things actually function in the body instead of giving ridiculous, you know, uh, illustrated. Lift from your inner thighs. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. So th- all of that stuff is starting to change, but at the end of the day, if there is that 
anxiety within a dancer and they're not able to put their best work forward, often what mm -hmm. happens is the, the artist, artistic team just comes back and says, oh, well, yeah, I mean, you look so good in the studio, but what happened? And they don't, they don't go past the, the point of, well, you know, maybe they're not getting enough sleep. Maybe they are stressed about something that's, that's going on in their personal life. Maybe, maybe for whatever reason, they're feeling not supported well enough. Or the choreographer came to them the night before and said, look, I was going to take you out of the piece, but now I've, because you did a good dress rehearsal, I'll leave you in. And so now you've got this like, oh, have I not been working well enough? And, and you know, I take this from my own stories because these, these are all things that have happened to me. Being chewed out mm -hmm. by the, the choreographer who was creating the piece in front of an entire film crew um, the day before filming was supposed to end. So now you feel absolutely horrible about the work that you've done because they're ripping into you there. Um, and no one has said anything to you along the whole process. So you're maybe six, eight weeks, you know, eight, 10 weeks into a process of learning and developing. And then they finally decide to say, hey, you're not doing well enough, right? And that, that psychological impact, especially on somebody who is already struggling so much with hypermobility to be able to even hold it together, that impact is detrimental to, to, to in many ways. And, and it can be soul crushing because here they mm -hmm. are feeling like they're doing everything that they have to do to then it, it just like, nope, you, you failed. You're not good enough. And then that, you take that on board and you just start to say, oh, well, you know, what can I do? I'm just not good enough. I can't do it. Even to the point mm -hmm. where the artistic directors may then say to you, hey, look, we just don't see your artistry developing or you're not at a, at a high enough level to be this, this point in the company after they've promoted you to that point, right? So they've, they've given you that, that thing and then, and then they're like, oh yeah, but look, you just didn't rise to the occasion. And yeah. So, oh, we thought you were good, but you're kind of stinky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, and then there, sending you off somewhere else. So saying, okay, you're not good enough for us, but hey, go over there. We'll, we'll send you over there. Maybe they need you, right? And it's just... It's yeah, like, exactly. Who do I trust? Who do I believe? So this, the psychological mm -hmm. element of this, and I, you know, I've kind of left this to the end of the discussion because I think it's probably the most impactful, is not there. And I think we need, you know, as, as a furthering discussion, as something possibly to leave the audience with is like, how do we bring that performance element into helping dancers along the path, not when it's too late. Yeah, we're starting to get mm -hmm. there with injury, we're starting to get there with strengthening, but the mental, the mental toughness, if you will, the, the, the support for, for, for mm -hmm. the mental capacity over that period of time, over the rehearsals, over the course of the year, that you just have someone that you can go to, to have that discussion with is like, yeah, I'm struggling here. I need some help. I need some coping mechanisms. I need something that I can take to my director or to my ballet master to say to them, look, this is what I'm dealing with. I need your help here. Not just to help me with my turns or my, or my positions or my artistry, but like, give me some, some mental stuff that I can go and take this on the stage with. And to not be looked mm -hmm. at and say, oh, well, you're just being silly. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Like that, that's not enough either. Right. So right. Uh, if you have if you have if you have any guidance or, or wisdom in that <laughs> in that area, I don't know. Like, this is just, well, so first of all, like circling it back to the hypermobility thing, people with hypermobility are statistically seven to eight times more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety, depression, eating disorders and more. Right. So all sorts of mental illness are um, statistically a much higher rate for people with hypermobility. Now, just because you can whack your elbow out doesn't mean you're at a super high risk of, of clinical depression, right? So it's, there's a, degrees of hypermobility um, and, and such, but it is statistically much higher and it is something that people should watch out for. Do, does ballet breed perfectionism or are perfectionists attracted to, to ballet? 
there's that chicken and egg thing that goes on with it. And when you look at the ballet world, um, I think for me, the biggest thing that I have regrets of when I was dancing is that I approached so many things from a base, from a position of fear. Um, I have such vivid memories of never wanting to work on my fuete turns because they weren't very good. And I don't want to practice them in front of people for fear of not looking good. My best friend who stayed after and asked me to stay after with her every day after class, um, her fuete turns looked fantastic within like three weeks. And, you know, I finally got them, but it was never great. Uh, and that was me being afraid of not looking perfect. And anytime I would go into an audition, I would think, what do they want from me? Like, what, who do they want me to be? Um, and I would try to be this blank slate. And just let them think, you know, just paint on me, whatever you want me to be, I will be it. And what they probably saw was, I'm not sure who this person is. And I think what we need to stop saying to dancers to, is to check your personality at the door, right? They're always saying, leave your problems, leave your personality at the door, come in blank, clean, don't let your problems come in with you. Don't let your problems overwhelm you, but your problems, your joys, everything, they feed who you are as a dancer. And if you walk in there and you put your hand on the bar and start plies and you burst into tears because you're just so happy to get a respite from your day, that's great. Like rejoice in the fact that, that those plies are bringing you that much joy. And I remember days like that, just to be so happy that for the next 90 minutes, this was all I had to think about, right? Um, but telling people to sort of have a lack of identity is not helpful. And when you talk to artistic directors and they say, I see this dancer as more of a, a Kitri than a Giselle. Why is that? Well, she, she's a faster jumper. What, what does that have to do with her personality? Like what of her personality does she bring to Kitri? And so it's seeing dancers as whole people and as artists, and we're not a canvas, we're a paintbrush. Like we are the thing that makes the art and we need to not be afraid of that. And so we need to walk into that room and say, here's who I am. How can you as a teacher, director, choreographer, help me channel that into what you want it to be? And if it's not a good match, it's okay. I may not be the dewdrop you want. I may be a snow queen instead. Let's find out, you know? I love that, Jennifer. That's that's fantastic. I think that's a, probably a great way to leave it. Just just as you know, be be that paintbrush, right? Like show them who you are. And I think that's something mm -hmm. I, I bring up with my students all the time. It's like I don't I don't. First of all, I don't need it to be perfect. Your students, right? This it is, never will be. This is this is the process of learning and developing and experimenting and understanding how you work. But then also. Be, be you. I want to see what you do with the canvas. Like, I'll give you the combination. The combination is the canvas, the ballet choreography. That's the canvas. Now paint on top of it. And I love, I love that, that visual, that metaphor. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Jennifer, where can, where can people follow you? How can they listen to more from, from you and, and get in touch with you? What are your... That's a great question. I'm on Instagram at Jennifer, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, period, Milner, M-I-L-N-E-R. And my website is jennifer-milner.com. And I will answer any questions, any DMs, happy to chat about anything we've talked about here. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.